Hi, thanks for joining us for today's podcast, where we have experts answering your questions about patient education on safe opioid use and naloxone. This program is supported by an independent educational grant from the opioid analgesic REMS program companies and is provided by Clinical Care Options in partnership with the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, the Alliance to Advance Comprehensive Integrative Pain Management, Practicing Clinicians Exchange, and ProCE. I'm Gabby with Clinical Care Options, and I'm delighted to introduce our expert faculty. Today, we have Dr. Gina Dallum, Clinical Associate Professor at the University of Michigan School of Nursing in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and Ms. Amanda Zimmerman, a PA at West Forsyth Pain Management in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. With that, I'm happy to pass it over to our two faculty to get started on answering your questions. Welcome. Let's start with uh, what information should a patient be told to share with the healthcare practitioners? I'm going to answer three of these questions sort of all in one. The second one is what tips do you have for obtaining information from other providers? And if the patient declines to share information, do you dismiss the patient from your care? So because I'm a pain specialist, I do all referral only. So at that point, I do obtain records that I review before the patient even comes into my office. So I already have an idea of who else they've seen. I look them up in the pharmacy database so I can see who's prescribed them any medication. I also look them up on, in North Carolina, we have an offender search that is public record. You know, it's uh, these kinds of convictions are public record and you, you perfectly can look them up. So often I will look those up and just kind of see if they've had any kinds of legal issues associated with controlled substances. So I, I, I gather all that information before I even see them. And then when I see them, if I find out they've had something from someone who I don't have the records, I will have them sign a release. And I will kind of tell them, I'm not doing this to judge you if they're being remiss to give me more information. I'm doing it to keep you safe, just so I, I have enough uh, information. And the more information I have, the better care you're going to receive. I don't dismiss them from my care if they decline to share their notes, but I do tell them that it's in their best interest to do so to keep them uh, safe in their treatment. So I mentioned that, you know, as a pain specialist, I get the referrals, so I usually have access to a lot of the records ahead of time. I know that in primary care, that's sometimes not the case because, you know, you're treating them for their blood pressure and then they say, I have back pain, so you don't really have a lot of information So I I do think that if they've been treated for pain from a pain specialist or from NorthPod or a neurologist, that you probably should have those records in order to give you the most complete picture. And, you you know, if you're considering prescribing an opioid, you can make it a requirement for them to sign for those records uh, before you agree to uh, write an opioid. So that is one, you know, mechanism you can use to really get the records to get a more complete picture. So I hope that's helpful. The next question is, can you describe how you do pill counts at a visit? So my nurse on intake, she gets their vital signs and their pain scores and, you know, just generally how they're doing. And then she does the pill count on intake. I tell every single new patient that I expect them to bring their pills with them to every visit. And then my nurse inspects them. And if she has any inkling that it is not the actual pill that's in the bottle. For example, we've had people bring in loratadine, claiming it to be oxycodone. And uh, so, and also on the pill bottle, there is a marking of what should be on the pill. Um, so that should match the pill. So my nurse kind of looks at all of that 
There's also a thing online called the pill identifier that you can um, just Google and you can uh, type in the color of the pill, the shape of the pill, and any markings on the pill, and it will tell you what the pill is. So if you have any suspicion that it might not be uh, the actual pill, then there are ways to figure that out. Pill counts are very helpful because you can tell if they're actually taking as much as prescribed. They might not be taking as much as prescribed, which is actually a good thing, but you don't want to refill it on the date it's due if they have enough to last another week or two. So you just want to kind of pay attention to that. And also, of course, you can tell if they're taking too much of it as well. So during the webinar, you mentioned that nalbufene can be used for itching side effects of opioid analgesics. How does that work since nalbufene is also an opioid agonist? And would you switch a patient to nalbufene or add it to their current regimen? So nalbufene only comes IV, so we don't use it in the outpatient setting. I imagine that it would be used by anesthesiologists if the patient had an, uh, a reaction to an opioid that they were taking perioperatively. So a lot of times anesthesiologists probably use nalbufene, but we really don't use it in the outpatient setting. What are some other medications that you use for the itching side effect? Since yeah, we're so not going to be using nalbufene. Usually I will change the medication. Sometimes I use some hydroxyzine. Yeah, it can make it sleepy, but just in a real low dose, I think it does help. And also, yeah. you know, we're sort of using it some for anxiety too, so we get that little extra. So another uh, great question, which I'm going to share with uh, Gina, is I've heard mixed messages. Should a patient tell their friends and family that they are taking opioids so that friends and family can be aware of overdose symptoms and naloxone use? Or should there be kept a secret to ensure no one goes looking for the medication to steal or misuse? So I think we just need to counsel our patients to be careful who they tell. If the people that are not living with them really do not need to know, but the people who are in their family who live with them or if they have a caregiver that lives with them, they should definitely know because they're the ones who are going to be administering the rescue. Um, so what, what are your feelings about that, Gina? Thanks, Mandy. Yeah, I definitely agree that I think whoever you feel will most likely be present to help you in the event of an accident or overdose is the person you want to share with. And so there are cases of self-administration of naloxone, but that is very rare. And so we do encourage uh, people to share with their family and friends that they're close to so that they are prepared to provide that rescue in the event you have an accidental overdose. And so now I'm going to read some of the questions that you submitted for the naloxone section. Thank you for submitting these questions. And the first one I'm going to review is intranasal naloxone comes in four and eight milligrams. Uh, when would you use one dosage versus the other? Great question. And so first, I think we want to keep in mind that higher doses of naloxone will produce greater precipitated withdrawal effects. And these withdrawal effects will mimic severe flu-like symptoms and is very uncomfortable for the patient, which may cause some unnecessary distress and agitation. And then second, you want to keep in mind and in step with principles of medication administration, if you are a nurse or NP and a lot of healthcare providers know about the five rights of medication administration. So you do not want to administer more medication than is needed. And that is part of our regular naloxone education to our community people as well. And third, there are two doses of intranasal naloxone in each of the box, which allows for titration depending on the person's response after you administer the first dose. 
And what we also know is that years of evidence have shown that the use of the four milligram intranasal naloxone is effective in reversing opioid overdoses. And people come out more confused, a little bit more drowsy in these community settings when uh, using the four milligram intranasal naloxone dose. So I would be a proponent for the four milligram because you're able to titrate that dose to the person's response. But it is also important to remember that you should still monitor after you administer the first dose. As stated in the education, you can repeat naloxone doses after every two to three minutes. And that two to three minutes is what you can do to check their breathing or provide rescue breathing, CPR, or follow dispatch instructions until the person regains consciousness or starts to breathe on their own. And so I think lastly, I do want to mention that if the eight milligram dose is all you have, well, you still want to use that. <laughs> and that's what's important. But just know that these higher doses can cause worse um, withdrawal symptoms in someone who is opioid dependent. Gina, I have a quick uh, but, question. Sorry. Yeah. I know the four milligram comes in generic. Does eight milligram come in generic as well? So great question. The eight milligram is not in generic right now. That would be a factor in uh, which one would you use, right? So when you think about cost, absolutely. But also, you know, we didn't touch on a lot about the intramuscular naloxone, but that is the cheapest route, intramuscular naloxone, which comes in vials, which is distributed by syringe service programs. And they will usually distribute four doses per naloxone kit. All right. The next question is how many naloxone units should a patient keep on hand? So each box will contain two doses. I think if uh, you live in a rural area where access to first responder um, response is delayed, it may be you know, advisable to keep two boxes just in case. But what I've seen and witnessed is that one naloxone box is sufficient for that overdose response. And especially since once 911 is called, a lot of times, majority of the first responders, particularly the police who are often the first to arrive at a scene, are also equipped with naloxone. The next question, is the intranasal naloxone a one-time dose applicator? Yes. Intranasal naloxone is one-time dose Therefore, no test spray is needed. And so make sure once you peel open the package, place the nozzle in the nose and then push the plunger. I always say you are safe by the nose. And then we also had a couple questions regarding the over-the-counter naloxone that has been announced. The first question is, can you share more about how over-the-counter naloxone will be able to be purchased? So right now, only the FDA only improved the four milligram intranasal naloxone dose, so not the eight milligram. The logistics of where that's going to be placed in the pharmacy uh, is still yet to be determined. I'm still waiting to find out as well. However, there are no federal restrictions on who may purchase over-the-counter four milligram intranasal naloxone. However, specific state laws may vary. So I am very curious to see how this will get rolled out and implemented uh, nationally and in various states. 
And then lastly, any ideas about costs and coverage of over-the-counter naloxone with insurance, especially private insurance versus without insurance? Great question. This is where it's going to get complex, depending on where you live and the type of insurance you have. And even right now, with the prescription naloxone, the co-pays can be anywhere from zero to $149. And so once the -the over-the-counter naloxone becomes available, I, I think it's going to really be dependent on what type of health insurance or prescription coverage that you may have, because as some health insurance plans do cover non-prescription medications. And so it will be important to check with your health plans. As far as the cost of the -the over-the-counter naloxone, the last I heard, it was going to be $50, but we don't know yet. So we'll see. And that $50 still seems cost prohibitive to many folks. And so I think all the while, if you're able to obtain naloxone for free through community naloxone distribution programs, or your syringe service programs, um, right now, the better you'll be in saving costs uh, as well in the long run. So referring to the standing orders for pharmacy naloxone distribution, depending on which state, each pharmacy has a different type of standing order. Some keep it behind the counter a lot of times in which you would have to go up to the pharmacist and ask the pharmacist to dispense you in naloxone. And what the pharmacist usually does is that they will bill your insurance and that copay, once again, is going to be pretty steep or free, depending on the type of insurance you have. Thank you so much to Mandy and Gina for providing all of those wonderful insights today. And thank you for everyone who tuned in to listen. We hope that this has made a difference in your clinical practice. For more information on chronic pain and opioid management, please visit the Opioid REMS Education website, which you can access through the link in the show notes. Thank you.